Now, in chapter 33, you have a summary of their exodus out of Egypt. And Moses sort of wrote down all the places where they had stopped as they made this journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. And for the most part, it's just a lot of names that, well, we don't recognize. Some of them are new. Some of them are the first time we've seen them. Some of them we remember from our journey in the book of Exodus. Now, in verse 51 of chapter 33, the Lord commanded Moses, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you are passed over Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all of the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures and destroy all their molten images and quite pluck down their high places and you shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it for I have given you the land to possess it. Now God wanted all the artifacts destroyed because the pictures for the most part were extremely lewd, lascivious, and the molten images, for the most part, were their gods that they were worshipped, which were, in many cases, grotesque and exaggerated sexual features. And the high places where they offered the sacrifices to their gods and they went through their religious rites were ordered utterly destroyed, lest there remain that polluting influence in the land. Because, again, Whatever a man sows, that also shall he reap. And if you are planting in your mind the images of sexual lasciviousness, then you're going to be reaping to your flesh. And God wanted all of those things to be obliterated, to be completely wiped out. So he ordered them to utterly destroy the pictures, the molten images, and the places of worship for the high places that were in the land. And you are to divide the land by lots for the inheritance. Verse 54. In other words, dividing off the land and then casting lots to see which tribes would get which area. And then the tribes were to divide up the land and to divide it up to the families. So each family within the tribe was to be given its land grant. And so this is the dividing out of the land, giving a portion of the land to everybody each family getting its own land grant, and this land was to then remain in those families perpetually. Now, in verse 55, the Lord warns them, But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that these which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land where you are dwelling. Moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. Verses 54 and 55. So, in other words, these people will drag you down and ultimately I, God, will have to destroy you out of the land, even as I destroyed them out of the land. Sin always has a polluting influence. And when I was a kid, my mom used to tell me about the one rotten apple in the barrel, right? How it can spoil the whole barrel and how it's important to choose your friends and to select them. Because you get one who's bad, whose influence can be bad 
on the entire group. So God ordered them to drive out the people completely, lest they would vex them. Now, Israel failed to obey the Lord in this. And a lot of times, we think we know better than God. We think that we can handle it. We think that God really doesn't understand the case completely, or he doesn't understand us completely. And yet, that rule might apply, you know, to others, but surely it doesn't apply to me. And we, when we learn to our own dismay and shame, the folly of disobedience, and we discover that God knew us better than we knew ourselves, and we realize how foolish it was for us to not completely obey God. So as we move into chapter 34, we find the borders of the land described now. In the south, the border of the land was to go down into the Sinai as far as Kadesh Barnea, the place where they had come south from, well, south from Beersheba, coming into the land down into the desert. The Mediterranean was to be the border on the west side. On the north side, the mountains of Lebanon at about Acor or Akko. That mountain range of Lebanon that comes around was to be the border on up to Mount Hermon. And you'll find, if you want to read it carefully, here there is the mention of Ain, which means fountains, which no doubt is a reference to the headwaters of the Jordan River at the base of Mount Hermon. So that whole upper, what they call the Hula Valley, was to be Israel's, bordered on the west side by the mountains of Lebanon. Much of the border that they have today with Lebanon was the border that was described here in the Bible. Now, the uppermost area in, uh, in the upper Hula Valley, near where the Jordan River begins, or coming out of Mount Hermon there, is where the city of Dan was built. And Dan occupied the northernmost part of the Hula Valley. And then coming on down around the Sea of Galilee, the tribe of Naphtali. And you can get a good Bible map, and you can see how the tribes were apportioned in the land. But the boundaries of the land are given to us here in chapter 34. And this is the land that God promised to Abraham. And this is the land that now belonged to these people. It was theirs. And God had given it to them. There was only one thing. They had to go in and take it. They had to go in and possess it. Even as God has given to you so many rich and precious promises. And all you have to do is step in and claim them. Just go in and take that which God has promised to you by faith. So the heads of the tribes are listed again in the latter portion of the chapter, in chapter 35. As we get into chapter 35, it describes the cities of refuge that they were to establish. In verse 2, command the children of Israel that they give to the Levites of the, of the inheritance of their possessions cities to dwell in. And you shall give to them also suburbs of the cities around them, and the cities that they shall have to dwell in, and the suburbs of them shall be for their cattle and their goods and for their beasts. 
verses 2 and 3. So the city itself, and then the extending out from the city, a thousand cubits for their farm area, and then an, out another 2,000 cubits for their cattle. And these were the suburbs of the city. And 48 of these cities were to be given to the Levites. They were not to get any huge chunks of land, nor were the families given portions of land. The Levites received no inheritance. And God said, I am their inheritance. They got the best deal. The rest of the people got property. The Levites got the Lord as their inheritance. And so they were given these 42 cities to live in and the suburbs around the cities to graze their cattle and grow their crops and 42 cities. Now, among the 42 cities, there were to be six cities that were appointed as cities of refuge. Three on either side of the Jordan River placed strategically through the land so that no matter where you were living in the land, you were never more than a half a day's run from the city of refuge. Now, the purpose of the city of refuge was to take care of a cultural practice that was deeply ingrained within the people. You know, one of the hardest things to become free of is tradition. There are certain cultural things that are so deeply embedded in our whole thinking processes that they are the hardest things in the world to root out. And I can give you one offensive illustration. Christmas is a pagan holiday. It has nothing to do with the birthday of Jesus Christ in its original form. They celebrated Christmas long before Jesus ever came along, but they called it by a different name. The Romans called it Saturnalia, but you can trace its origin clear on back to Nimrod shortly after the time of Noah. The decking of trees, all the customs are not Christian in origin at all. And yet to suggest that we abandon the celebration of this pagan holiday would bring great incense and censure from the church. You mean you're not going to celebrate Christmas? Because it is so deeply embedded in our whole traditional pattern. We hold on to it, though we recognize that it is becoming more paganized all the time. How many people really honor Jesus Christ on Christmas? If it was his birthday, it wasn't, but if it was his birthday, how many are truly honoring Christ on that day? And as we look at the celebration, the police departments have to put on extra duty. All of the reserves are called in. <laughs> Why? Because there are going to be so many drunks on the road, people going home from the Christmas parties. We've been celebrating Jesus is born, ha, ha, ha. And yet we find extreme difficulty in trying to divorce ourselves from it because it's so much a part of our culture. Tradition, it's the hardest thing in the world to root out. And so God, rather than seeking to root out totally the tradition, though he wasn't in favor of it, he placed restrictions upon it. And to these people, a part of their cultural process was revenge killing. And that was just part of their whole culture. If a member of your family was killed by someone else, 
you were honor bound to kill him. You owed it to him, your dead relative. The honor of the family is at stake, and you must pursue him until you find him and put him to death. And the family honor cannot be maintained until his blood has been split. And if you're the oldest son in the house, then you become the avenger of blood. And it's your duty, your family duty, to avenge the blood of your dead brother or sister or mother or father. And this idea of revenge killing was deeply embedded in their whole cultural processes, tradition. Now, in some cases, the killing was totally accidental and there was no malice, there was no anger, there was no premeditation. It was just an accident. But this idea of revenge killing was so deep that even though it was an accident, the avenger of blood was prone to catch the guy and kill him anyway. I didn't mean to do it. It was just an accident, friend. I didn't, well, you know, you had it anyhow. And they had no mercy. It's honor. It's duty. I've got to kill you. So in order to modify this deeply ingrained practice, God established the cities of refuge so that if you, by accident, should kill someone, you could flee to the city of refuge. And if you could get to the city of refuge before the avenger caught up with you, if you could come within the borders of the city, you were safe. He could not come into the city to take your life. And the Levites, it was the city of the Levites, the Levites would shelter you and protect you, and they would guarantee your opportunity to have a free trial and a fair trial. Now, unless you got to the city, you didn't have a fair trial at all. It was the law of vengeance and revenge, and they would catch you and kill you. So you had to flee to the city of refuge, and there you would have a fair trial. Now, if it could be proved that it was not an accident, that you had been planning it, that you had hatred and animosity, and it could be proved that it was an action and it was done in anger or malice on your part, then you were delivered from the city of refuge and the avenger put you to death. But if you could show that it was purely an accident, that you had no intentions on doing it, it was just an accident, then you could remain in the city of refuge and they couldn't touch you. You would then live in the city of refuge. And as long as you stayed in the city of refuge, you were protected. But if you should leave the city, then if the avenger would catch you, then he would put you to death. You were only safe as long as you stayed within the borders of that city of refuge. There is another provision because man needs hope. And living in a city can feel like, well, living in a prison. And you can soon despair. I'm away from my family. I want to be home and all. And I'm never going to get home. So there is another provision to give hope for that person. And that is, if the high priest should die, then you are freed and you could go home. And God was making these options and all because really he was opposed to the whole practice of revenge killing. But it was so deeply ingrained in their culture that he created these limitations and loopholes for the innocent parties. That became then a part of the tradition and the culture of the people. Now, I believe that God is not incensed or angry if you celebrate Christmas. 
if you have a Christmas tree. I thank God that I have great liberty in Jesus Christ. And when we celebrate Christmas, we are not thinking of Tammuz or Nimrod or Semiramis or the pagan gods that were usually celebrated this time of year, nor Saturn, nor the sun. I think that is good to remember that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And as much as we don't know when Jesus was born, it really doesn't matter which day you might set aside to celebrate his birth. The date itself isn't important. But I thank God that I have the freedom to celebrate with my family a day of giving, a day of expressions of love. But I'm also thankful that I have the freedom not to enter into certain pagan aspects of the holiday, if I don't want to. It's great to have freedom in Christ. I'm free to have a tree, or I'm free not to have a tree, and it doesn't condemn me if I have one, and it doesn't make me more righteous if I don't have one. But these things are tradition. They become deeply embedded in our whole family culture processes, and God understands how deeply embedded they are. And as so he just, you know, you know he, he makes the rules whereby oftentimes he modifies some of the poorer aspects of those practices. So where traditionally Christmas is a time for getting drunk, the Lord modifies that and says, be not drunk with wine, where an excess be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. It teaches us moderation in all things. So here God deals with a cultural practice, modifying it, bringing it within borders, within limitations, and providing for the innocent. And yet the murderer was in no way to be set free. They were not to actually put to death a man with one witness, though. There had to be at least two witnesses. They could not take the testimony of one witness and put a man to death. In the mouth of two witnesses, at least, it had to be established. Then, if it was established, they were not to take any ransom for the guilty. He was not to be able to buy his way out. So the guilty would be, would be put to death and the land would be free from their pollution. Now, we've got a lot of sociologists today that say that the death penalty is no deterrent against crime. It's a horrible thing to put men to death and all this kind of stuff. And so what has happened? We say the law of God really isn't valid. It really isn't good. And with our social sciences, we know so much better than the law of God, and we're able to establish law that is superior to the law of God. How would you describe our land today? It's pretty polluted, isn't it? That's what God said. He established a force so the land wouldn't be polluted. And we have found out rather than knowing better than God, well, that he knew best. But we've gone so deep into it, there seems to be no way out now. Chapter 36. Now, in chapter 36, we have these daughters of Zelephad. The guy had seven daughters, so no sons. And they said, hey, 
it isn't fair that we don't get an inheritance in the land just because there are no boys in the family. Our family should have an inheritance just like everybody else. And so the girls ought to be able to have an inheritance just as much as the boys. And Moses took it before the Lord and he said, those girls are right. You know, they, they shouldn't be cut off just because they're girls. So give them the inheritance too within the land. And when you come into the land, those girls are to get an inheritance in the land. Well, they were from the tribe of Judah. And some of the other fellows in the tribe of Judah came to Moses and said, Hey, now look, this thing could create some real problems. What if these girls marry guys from, say, the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Manasseh? Then after the year of Jubilee, when everything reverts back to the original ownership, it means that part that part then is allotted to Judah will also be given partially to Manasseh or to these other tribes that these girls have married into. So they can get into all kinds of trouble here. Our portion could be divided out to other tribes because these gals want an inheritance here. So Moses said, all right, this is the rule. The girls, the daughters of Zelophehad, they have to marry boys from the tribe of Judah. Otherwise, they don't get their inheritance. And so all the girls married guys from the tribes of Judah rather than marrying outside the tribes. And that became the law of the land when the inheritance went to a girl. In order to have the inheritance, she had to marry within the tribe that she was from so they wouldn't be dividing the lands between the tribes. But they all, the tribes had their definite and defined borders and there wouldn't be a mixing up of the land by marriages. And so this was that law. So whenever the girls inherited the land, then it was necessary for those girls to marry someone from that tribe in order to keep the inheritance of the land. Otherwise it was to be given away to those other tribes so that the land would not have borders within the land and it would not become all confused. Now, these are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses to the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho, verse 13. So, this is the end of the road for Moses. He's brought them as far as he can. These are the commandments now, and now Moses is to lay down the rulership and Joshua is to take over to lead the people into the promised land. But now as we go into the book of Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy means the second law. And so it is sort of a summation of that which we have gone through. And Deuteronomy, just a sort of summation now, and we're going, go, we're going to go rapidly through these things pretty much, and that we've already covered all these things. So we go through the second law of the book of Deuteronomy, and then we come back to the same point at the end of Deuteronomy, at the same point of history, that we are right here. And then so you should think in our minds traditionally, we think, well, chronological order. You know, because the Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, follows numbers that took place after numbers. But the Bible doesn't always follow the culture or tradition of the Western mind. And quite often the Bible lays out a whole scene and then it comes back and fills in the details. And that's why people oftentimes have difficulty with the book of 
revelation because it doesn't follow a set chronological order like we're used to thinking of in our own western minds and so deuteronomy we're going we're going to now jump back and come back through it again very rapidly and then when we get into joshua joshua then we start moving ahead in chronological order again so next time we'll take on the first 10 chapters of the book of deuteronomy and now may the lord help you to assimilate that which we have studied and may he bring to remembrance those things which he has commanded and may you be enriched in the knowledge of god and his will and his plan for your life may the lord be with you to bless you and to guide you and may you be kept by that power of god through faith and trust in him the great i am it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. <laughs>